Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. The snow filled the air with a soft grey-blue mist, softening the wind and gunfire, bringing the earth and sky together into one swaying blur. The snow fell on Bark's shoulders. It was as though flakes of silence were falling on the still Volga, on the dead city, on the skeletons of horses. It was snowing everywhere, on earth and on the stars. The whole universe was full of snow. Everything was disappearing beneath it. Guns, the bodies of the dead, filthy dressings, rubble, scraps of twisted iron. This soft white snow settling over the carnage of the city was time itself. The present was turning into the past, and there was no future. Welcome to The Rest is History, and that was Vasily Grossman in his great novel Life and Fate, drawing on his experience as a war reporter during the Battle of Stalingrad in the last months of 1942. So, Tom, we ended the last episode with German and Soviet troops fighting house to house, and winter was coming ever closer, and our guest Ian McGregor is still with us. And Ian, can we kick off by talking about one of the really iconic things about Stalingrad, something I know you're really interested in, which is the story of Pavlov and his house? Because this is, your book is called The Lighthouse of Stalingrad, and um, I mean, obviously, this is a podcast, so people can't see the map, but if you can imagine, there is a a square very close to the Volga River called the 9th of January Square, and it's flanked by all these buildings. Um, the German forces are, have sort of got down to the square, and there's one building that sort of sticks out into the square, isn't it? It's an apartment building, and this is the the, the, the building that becomes famous, the famous building of Stalingrad called Pavlov's House. So tell us about who Pavlov is and, and why his house matters. Junior Sergeant Pavlov is a bit like Chukov. He was born in a village outside of Moscow, about 50 miles outside of Moscow. Uh, he joined up at the start of the war. Uh, and he was in, he was in the elite formations because the guards rifle divisions, uh, that had been created, uh, were seen as, uh, the elite, uh, of the Russian red army armed forces, uh, better trained, better equipment, uh, better pay, better food. And, he was in Redimtsev's 13th Guards that had gone over on this uh, suicidal, almost like Omaha Beach uh, assault onto the Western shore to reclaim the central part of the city, which the Germans had taken the day before. And they, they did manage to drive them back. And there, what you have, therefore, going forward over the next few weeks and months is this brutal house-to-house fighting for just the few inches of ground, few feet of ground, the next room, the next floor, hopefully the, you capture the next building. Uh, the 9th of January Square is, is literally six, 700 metres away from the Volga. Uh, and behind that is the central landing pier where the main supplies of troops and, and ammunition and as well as the wounded going in the other direction were. Uh, and that's where Redimtsev had his headquarters. And it was up to him to have his three regiments along this line that would defend the pockets of resistance in the centre of the city. Uh, and what evolved was 
it was the case of following Chukhev's orders that there would be an active defense, which came all the way from Moscow. Stalin wanted to see this. He wanted to, to let the Russian people know that they were fighting to defend the city uh, and they were taking the fight to the Germans. They weren't just passively waiting to be attacked. So this active defense spawned or evolved the, the doctrine of the storm troops. Pavlov became part of this. Instead of mass assaults by company-sized uh, formations, which would then be decimated by German artillery, uh, assault guns, or aerial attacks. They would shrink this down to six-man teams. Normally, six-man teams could be eight-man teams, and they would be armed to the teeth. So they would have the latest submachine guns, like I was saying, their pocket artillery, which was bags of uh, of grenades. Uh, And it would be up to them to be the, uh, the vanguard to see if they could take these buildings that were further into the heart of the city that would might be able to allow Radimsev to then push the line further away from the Volga and give himself more of a chance of staying there. So from late September all the way through to the end, really, that's the kind of fighting that the Russians employed in the heart of the city and in the factory districts to retake these buildings. So Pavlov was just part of this. And the house that Dominic was talking about was a house that stuck out is a, a huge four-story uh, apartment block. Could probably take at least 200 people, had over 100 rooms, had a reinforced concrete basement as well. And before the war, it, it had been one of these new modern blocks that had been built for uh, specialists who worked in the factory districts, the, the middle managers, directors, and uh, important party officials. So it, before the war, it, it, it was a place you wanted to live in. But during the war, not. Yes, exactly. <laughs> By the war, not. And so the Germans had taken it. It was one of their main uh, places that they had taken around the square. They already had all the buildings on the other side of the square and to the side of the square as well. And this building was seen as a, uh, I suppose, uh, it was a vantage point because it was so high. And it becomes a totem. Yes, exactly. And it offered great views across the city. You could see the whole length of the city. Uh, you could see what the Germans were doing in terms of where they were moving to. It would give uh, the artillery spotters on the roof time to then feed back information to the huge artillery parks that Chukov had built on the eastern shore that were landing these huge salvos that were destroying German formations as they lined up. Even before they attacked, they would be spotted. And this is one of the reasons why the Germans wanted this kind of house back. So when they lost it to Pavlov's team, and then it became infested with reinforcements and turned into a super fortress, the Germans wanted it back. And that, that, that's a very similar story to at least a dozen buildings you could talk about in the centre of the city that was fought over, back and forth over the following months. So when you say a super fortress, they're installing machine guns. I mean, the whole place must have been shot to pieces, but it's, a, it's basically a ruin by now, right? I mean, it's just... yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, the roof's pretty much caved in. Obviously, all the windows are shot out. And if it's become a kind of totem for the Soviets, is is it also something that the Germans feel we've got to take it? Well, that's what I found in the research. It was never, again, if you look at the the official story, Paulus himself apparently had it marked on his map that Pavlov's house was a place that they needed to take. Uh, but it's not mentioned in any uh, uh, combat diary of the main German divisions, the two or three German divisions that were in the, operating in that area. They never talked about it. Uh, the, the main combat commander whose personal papers I discovered, who was a key figure in the fighting in this area, never mentioned it. Uh, he talked about other buildings that they fought for, but he didn't talk about Pavlov's house. Uh, it was, it was, don't get me wrong, it was essential. They needed to have it. Uh, it, it. 
it was their almost their warning system for anything that would happen if the Germans were going to advance towards Radimsev's main line. He needed that as his almost, uh, you know, uh, canary in the gas chamber to, to warn him what was going on. But but you're right, Tom, they, they, they'd laid minefields around the building. It was heavily barbed wire. They'd moved in heavy machine guns. They'd moved in teams of uh, tank destroyers on the roof. I mean, it's pretty impregnable. So why? I mean, Pavlov's house becomes famous, doesn't it? Is it famous during the battle or is it is, is it only famous afterwards? Because I think, isn't it, isn't it taken up by a newspaper called Stalin's Banner? Um, a great name for a newspaper. <laughs> Tell where that's coming from. Uh, I think its political leanings very clear. Um, uh, so, so Stalin's Banner is basically the, the Russian Guardian. Um, it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's um, it, and, and it create. I'm right in thinking that this is long after the battle, and it basically creates Pavlov's house as a kind of an emblem of Soviet fellowship and bravery and because it because because it's all about how it's not just russians is it it's people from across the soviet union it's a, a band of happy brothers the red army during the second world war really expanded uh their propaganda uh tentacles into the into the their the, the, their formations there was over 1300 newspapers and journals uh published created and published across the red army across every territory so that's where you've got people like Ilya ehrenberg and valerie grossman and these sort of Iconic figures. Yeah, I mean, and there were over, I think, five thousand reporters that would work on these journals and newspapers. And of that five thousand, over nine hundred were professional writers, as as Orenberg and, and obviously Vasily Grossman. So they they were part of this organised, uh, dedicated setup to report the stories that that boosted morale, uh, gave any kind of defeat a, a certain slant that it didn't seem so catastrophic. And Stalingrad, as you said right at the beginning, became uh, a metaphor for almost the soul of the of the Russian during the, that part of, of the Great Patriotic War. It's, we cannot give Stalin up. It's a breathing, living city. It's not a dead city. Uh, we are fighting for it. We are fighting for the soul. And we are defending Mother Russia and Mother Volga. And that's the kind of attitude that was taken. So, Ian, I, I, I listened to the podcast that our sister podcast, We Have Ways, did on um on Stalingrad and they had an interview with a very interesting I think he's creator of the Museum of the Second World War in Dresden. And he and he he scoffed at the idea. We don't have scoffing on our podcast, Tom. Well he didn't scoff. He was he was politely skeptical of the idea and that that Stalingrad had resonance for the Soviets and for Stalin himself because it was Stalin City, because of its name. What's your take on that? I think I, I would say inside the city, those that were fighting for it, definitely I, I would agree with that. I think they weren't fighting for Stalin. Uh, they weren't fighting uh, uh, for any kind of notional idea that uh, they were saving uh, Russia. I think as any combat soldiers would say, fighting in any kind of horrific situation like this, they're fighting for each other. You're doing it for your friends. But the broader, mm. the, the propaganda thing, the spin, how, how, is, how is the Soviet press, how is the Soviet media spinning it the story was taken up on the 31st of october it was first mentioned by then the battle had moved to the north the factory district the the, the south of the city had already been captured weeks before the central part was pretty much 90 percent occupied by the germans there was only that sliver 
of a few hundred meters depth from the Volga that was still occupied by Radimtsev's forces. Paulus was now under instruction that you've taken those two bits. The final bit is to now take the factory district. And that's where the fighting had moved to. So Pavlov's house and the 9th of January Square was quite quiet at the time. And that's when the reporters, I suppose, felt it safe to move in and do some interviews. And that's exactly what happened. So as I say in the book, this uh, correspondent for the the newspaper, six-page newspaper or newsletter for the 62nd Army was called Stalin's Banner. And uh, a Lieutenant, uh, Julie Shapurin, happened to be given uh, permission to go into uh, the house. And he was the one who actually gave the term in the first article about it on the 31st of October, the House of Pavlov. And in that, he then waxes lyrical about the the tropes that have survived all these decades long about there was a few of them. There were a band of brothers. They came from this huge ethnic mix that represented the Soviet Union. So Tartars, uh, Chechens, uh, Tajiks, and, and ironically, Ukrainians, uh, that would uh, hold off this uh, relentless horde of of uh, german infantry aerial attacks and armored attacks for the next 58 days and and is this rubbish ultimately it's inflated it happened to a degree but like any fight that was going on in the city as we talked about earlier on you you capture a house or you capture a room or a floor in a house you might give it up within 12 hours and then you might retake it again and this goes back and forward back and forward over the days and the weeks of this fighting and that's why it became a meat grinder the house itself, uh, they took it, but by my reading of the accounts that were written down and just stored in, in the, the Panorama Museum's archives, and that's not just the, the ordinary soldiers who fought with Pavlov, but his commanding officer and then the chain of command right up to regimental level that was in charge of operations in the area, they, they, they moved in a lot of troops. That's how they turned it into a fortress, and that's how they were turning the other houses into fortresses. The whole point of which was, yes, they're going to attack us, and primarily they're going to attack us via aerial attack, because that was that was their best weapon, and and artillery barrages, and that does cause casualties. But as soon as the the casualties were shipped out, more reinforcements come in. So it's not really a band of brothers. It's a it's a it's a shifting. Yes. It's homogenous. And there's an awful lot of troops. And Pavlov himself, am I right in thinking that Pavlov wasn't the commander? The commander was a man called Afanasyev, Lieutenant Afanasyev? Yeah, so he came in within uh, 48 hours of Pavlov's storm team taking the house. And again, there's conjecture on whether he actually they actually took the house by fighting. There's, there's sto- Some German stories I've read is there was actually no one there. The Germans have vacated it. That's not such a good story, though, is it? <laughs> exactly. But the legend is they were there and they took it room by room uh, and they and they succeeded. So Anasayev took over 48 hours later. He was the one who led the first of a number of reinforcement columns into the house. So, Ian, it's a meat grinder. Uh, the Germans and the Russians are kind of tearing chunks out of each other. Nothing much seems to be happening except that everyone's dying. But then something does change. And this is Operation Uranus. Yes. So the, the, this has been actually first talked about during the really dark days of uh, early September when the Germans were first investing the city and they'd already, they'd, they'd already reduced it to rubble. Uh, and it was a case of, and, and Chukov hadn't even been given his command yet. 
And this was uh, Georgi Zhukov. At the time, he wasn't Marshal Zhukov yet. He would be a, a year or so later. But at the time, he was he was a general, but he was still deputy supreme commander. And he was the one reporting to Stalin in Moscow. And with his colleague, Vasilevsky, they were outlining the predicament they were in. And the Germans were still pushing towards the Volga and they were going to seize Stalingrad. And as well as getting a flea in the ear, their ear from Stalin, who obviously didn't want to have this happen, uh, they had the, I was going to say the guts, they had, the, they had the, the ability to actually sit him down and mention that they had this plan as military strategists, great military strategists, both of them were, they could see how overextended the German lines were now from their main base where they'd started from. And they had very weak flanks. So it's all about the trucks. It's all about the trucks. Well, it's about the trucks. And as, as had been said, the bulk of the fighting going towards the Volga was being done by German troops, infantry and armour, and the Luftwaffe, like I said. But their flanks were being guarded by their Axis allies. And the Axis allies are not strong, right? They're not sure. They had, they had great fighting spirit, and that's what I've seen in a lot of the the, uh, the the records I've read. I mean, obviously, a lot of them did flee when Uranus started. But if you're an infantryman on the frozen step and you haven't been fed properly in in weeks, and you haven't got the anti tank guns you're required to fend off a T three four, when you see hundreds of them coming through the the, the the foggy mist, what do you do? And they did put up a fight for a day or two days, I think, uh, in the north when the first section started. But it's a it's a it's a it's a weight of numbers and a weight of firepower. They're mostly Romanians. Are they Romanians? Hungarians? Roma- R- primarily Romanians were guarding the flanks with uh, uh, the Italians and the Hungarians too. But predominantly, the the famously the the main breaks in the line at the beginning were from the Romanians that were guarding the flanks in the north, especially. But in you said it was tanks, but also I I, I gather um, from your book Cossack horse cavalry. Great scare tactic. And they can travel well on in snow. They're well provisioned. Uh, yeah, thousands upon thousands of Cossack columns. So, I mean, uh, uh, may, I had no idea that at the Battle of Stalingrad, the Cossacks on their horses played a key role. I mean, well, that's, that's like in the steppe. Out of the it's, not, it's, it's not in the city itself. It's out on the steppe. Because you've got to remember that, that this, this frontier ran for hundreds of miles. So this is the encircling. This is the encircling process. So this is... They're coming around and they're kind of bottling yeah. the Germans up. Yeah. And you compare it to the Battle of Cannae, uh, Han- Hannibal's great victory over the Romans. But at, the, at Cannae, Hannibal's army was was smaller than um, the Roman army w- that they envelop. But presumably by this point at Stalingrad, the Russians are, are are starting to really outnumber the Germans, are they? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's when their reinforcements are really coming online. Uh, they're being fed into the mix of the big bridgeheads that Zhukov was building up on either flank, north and south of the city, not just in terms of men. He had well over a million men by now, fresh troops, including Cossacks. But he had hundreds of tanks uh, and they'd rebuilt the Soviet Air Force. So they had well over a thousand planes now that could t- contest the skies over the city as well as uh, in and around the areas that they were going to attack in a pincer movement from north and south. And, and so how long after starting Operation Uranus did the Germans find themselves surrounded? Within days. So it, it, it was launched in the north on the 19th, the following day from the south. Uh, and by the 23rd, they met up uh, famously at a, a transport hub, Kalach, which was roughly around 40 to 50 kilometres deep into uh, the German lines and way behind Stalingrad. And that's where they met. And that's where the Germans realised they were in a tricky situation. 
And and are they taking the Germans taken completely by surprise by this? Have they not seen it coming at all? They they'd had some warnings, but I don't think they realised there wasn't the belief. Certainly, there wasn't a belief in the upper echelons of the high command where Hitler was operating that they would have not just the resources to attack, but they would have learned from the Germans' use of combined arms. This was the properly the first time that the Russians used combined forces. So air attacks met by then uh, huge ar- artillery bombardments. Then the armor goes in and then the, the infantry follows up. They hadn't been doing that before. This was the first time that they, it all worked. It clicked and it had incredible results. So Hitler, um, ironically, 11 days before the, the the Soviets launched this fantastic kind of pincer operation, um, he has gone in front of his old fighters in the beer hall in uh, <laughs> Munich, and he's basically told them Stalingrad is finished. We've, we've, we're just mopping up. We've, we've, the city is ours, hasn't he? Yes. And obviously, the question that's always hung over the last sort of the horrendous last weeks, um, last two months really of the Battle of Stalingrad is the the Sixth Army. Pre- they pretty much know straight away they've been encircled, don't they? And they say, should we break out now of the encirclement back to the west, link up with the rest of the German forces, or are we just going to stay here? and somehow fight it out. And Hitler says, well, you absolutely have to stay. You cannot retreat. Show national socialist spirit. Yes, exactly. I mean, there's so many questions about this. Is this Hitler's ideological blindness? Do his generals know that it's um, that it's folly? And I suppose third, if he had said, actually, you know what? Break out. Get back to the West. Get back to the rest of the troops. Could they have even done it? Yeah, that's a big ask in the weather as well, especially when you're up against so many fresh troops and tanks and, and a revitalized Air Force too. They probably would have done it, but they, I, it's speculation on how much would be left by the time they'd done it. Uh, Hitler is famous for not saying they couldn't do it, and he's slept on it overnight, and then he's persuaded by Goering uh, or some of Goering's uh, logistical commanders as well of that an airlift was possible. And it had worked the year before. So once we had the, uh, after Barbarossa and the, and the Russian winter counteroffensive, there had been various pockets that had been isolated once Hitler had said, stand and fight. And these had been successfully, uh, I mean, we're talking army groups, not, not, not a few thousand men, huge armies of that 70 to 80,000 men that had been surrounded by the, the Russian counteroffensive had been resupplied and fought their way out. So it had worked. So he, on the one hand, he wanted to believe what he was being told by Goering, who was who was had been out of favour and was now trying to get back in favour. Uh, who was promising him, "I can get together enough transport planes to supply the Sixth Army," which was bogus from the start. But equally, as Hitler surprisingly admitted to his uh, chief of staff, he was in the operations room and he's pointing to obviously where. The, the situation where they're in at the moment, this pincer's closed, and he's pointing to Stalingrad. He said, if we retreat from there, we are never getting back there. He was realist enough to know that the cost that it had taken to get there, he, w- he wouldn't be in the situation to get to get it again. What, what's the possible endgame, Ian, though, in which they, they summer? Because they can't hold out. Or does he think... There's, there's the other army, isn't there? So there's the army to the south. But again, I think I think that was a gesture more than a specific plan. I don't think it was ever a realistic option. So this is Operation Winter Storm, is that right? Yeah, and that was von Manstein, who'd who'd been promoted to field marshal because he'd successfully 
conquered the Crimea with the 11th Army. He was then parachuted in, as he would be in future operations through the war. He, he was a very able, talented commander. Uh, he was given a couple of fresh divisions and some battered survivors that had managed to retreat west and get back to the lines from the encirclement. And these were used to try and batter a way through. He tried it. Uh, it, it, it began uh, 12th of December, but again, it's they just weren't appreciative of, A, the Russian winter and the kind of forces that they were now facing. Because they're all wearing the wrong shoes. Well, no, but the Russians are deliberately, by the time they'd done the encirclement, they then brought in fresh reinforcements to really solidify that line looking out from Stalingrad to the new frontier the Germans had, whilst the forces surrounding Stalingrad would then reduce it. So then they're in this, what are they called, the Kessel? The The Kessel, yeah. Which is sort of shrinking by the day, basically. Um, And and I guess at this point, the Germans are probably losing as many men to frostbite and cold and starvation as they are to Russian fire. Absolutely. Yeah, well, as as we were talking about, uh, they'd been promised X amount of provisions and supplies by the Luftwaffe or by Goering. Uh, And the Luftwaffe, the the transport planes that they tried to scrape together from all different theatres of operations to try and achieve this, it was never going to happen. Even on a good day, they delivered half the tonnage that the Sixth Army needed because this is over 300,000 men trapped in this castle. Uh, they, they need everything that you need to survive, not just arms and armaments. So you're right. The operations that were subsequently then happening over the coming weeks going into 1943, into January, was simply to isolate specific areas of the, the pocket to carve it up and isolate those pockets to then easily reduce them further. It did cost the Russians thousands and thousands of troops to do this. But they could afford it. They can afford it, and the Germans were putting up a good fight. And in the middle of this, Ian, you have these incredibly harrowing, actually kind of oddly haunting scenes of the Germans at Christmas. They try to cut down trees with Christmas trees. They light candles. They think about their families back home. They sing hymns and stuff. So I, I, I had something like this in about this in my kids' book that I did about the Second World War. And when my son was reading the, in the draft, it was the, he said to me, and he was then, I think, eight, and he said, um, God, this is for the first time I've realised the Germans were people too. I almost feel sorry for them. Mm-hmm. But you do kind of, it's hard to read that. I mean, whenever we read the stories of the Battle of Stalingrad, for obvious reasons, the Germans loom in our, mind, in our imagination as, as it were, the villains. But when you read those stories of them, you know, sort of their eyes full of tears, kind of trying to celebrate Christmas, it's hard. Do you think it's hard not to be moved or am I being too sentimental? No, I think I think it's absolutely right. It's it's human nature. I mean, I I, I I hugely admire the Russians for what they did and what they suffered. But yeah, I mean, you, you can't help it. And you look at the, you know, like I have, you look at some of the drawings that were created, the Christmas cards. I've got several at home here that uh, were supplied to me when I was talking to veterans. Very kindly, they gave them. They they look so sweet and uh, and amazing. And they obviously behind them is a must be a story of of terror and despair. Uh, the the personal papers I got from Colonel Friedrich Roscoe, who's obviously in charge of a, 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 a regiment that was in the centre of all this in the, in the city fighting. Yeah, he's one of your big characters, isn't he? Again, it's it's it, it's heartbreaking. He tells an amazing story of how he's standing outside his headquarters and uh, he hadn't told his men it was his birthday, and amid the uh, the silence of uh, uh, the Russians stopped for a few hours of a barrage, they get out and get some fresh air and they're having a cigarette and he's talking to his officers. 
and he started to be serenaded by the regiment's military band who've scrubbed and donned on their best clothes and come marching out of the basement and uh, sing him happy birthday. And he's moved to tears. And when you read that, you can't help but feel uh, sorry for their predicament. But they had killed a lot of people. Let's bear that in mind. So, yeah, yeah. well, just probably a bit of balance there before we get the violins out. But but also the Russians have put out the, that was the talk about the violins out. I was about to say the Russians have the loudspeakers out, don't they? Um, and I, what I always think is the most unbelievably sinister thing the Russians have got um, a loudspeaker playing the sound of a clock and a voice sort of says in German, every seven seconds a German dies at Stalingrad. God, that is sinister. <laughs> and, and I mean, that must have been absolutely terrifying, you know, because the, the clock ticking and all the time. It's a dystopian nightmare. Uh, yeah, well, they were dropping leaflets. They were using uh, POWs that they captured that, that were willing to make speeches or call to their comrades to come over. And, and towards the end, uh, very much in any kind of, kind of huge human disaster, whether it's the Titanic or whatever, you get people that that do dreadful things right at the end. And, the, and there were, I mean, that's what happened. The, that kind of psychological warfare worked. It convinced whole units to break the line and just walk across the snow into captivity. Okay, let's, uh, I think we should take a break there. Uh, and when we come back, Let's have a look at how the Germans surrender, their official surrender. Um, and also, I think we should look at how the battle is seen today um, in Russia and elsewhere in the world. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Um, 
Before the break, we heard how the German defeat in Stalingrad was looking inevitable. But Ian, the first official ultimatum of surrender, so that's official ultimatum sent by the Soviets, by the Red Army High Command to the Germans, comes on the 7th of January. Have I I got that right? Yeah. Paulus is feeding this back to Hitler in, in Supreme Headquarters, and they're being discounted one after another. Uh, this this happens a few times. So there's still communications. I mean, how are the communications holding up? Oh, they, they had radio communications all the way through until the second to last day of the surrender, right? Uh, because that's how uh, Paulus was then promoted to field commander. That's how they 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 gave him his promotion to field field marshal. And there's a whole welter of promotions to the various officers. So basically, which you know, Paulus says this is basically the indication I should commit suicide. Yeah, I should kill myself. Uh, <laughs> So there's that, and it's just the intense, the, the intensity and the hopelessness of their situation, as the ring, the the Kessel ring, is shrinking, as it's then broken up into three specific parts: north, centre, and south. And the communication between those elements are lost, and it's what you do. And all the time, you've got stragglers moving into these these last uh, fortifications, trying to seek shelter, trying to get away from the cold medical attention, trying to get something to eat. So, so Ian, um, Hitler basically wants them to die like the Spartans at Thermopylae. Um, but what actually happens? Talk, talk us through what, what the end game is. Well, the, the end game, you're right. He wants them to tie down as many Soviet forces as possible because then it was a strategic matter. He still had to try and extricate Army Group A from the Caucasus, which were in danger of being sealed off if the Russians pushed even further west from where they were surrounding the Stalingrad area. They could easily shut the door on Army Group A, and then he's got an even bigger disaster on his hands. So strategically, it was thought if Paulus can keep going for as long as possible, it ties up several armies that are surrounding Stalingrad and uh, that flank and allows uh, Manstein to, to get extricate as many troops and, and, and uh, armor as possible, which, which is what happens. And he managed to stabilize the front. But in Stalingrad itself, yes, it was ground down remorselessly. There's tank armies coming in all directions. Uh, and don't forget, there's Chukov's 62nd Army still in the heart of the city, fighting for all it's worth to tie down whatever of palace's forces want to carry on the fight and and there were there were there were quite a few thousand troops that were still prepared to go down fighting to the last bullet as hitler wanted them to he wanted everyone to do that but they were prepared to do that and that's what i capture in roska's uh memoirs in he was uh he's just an excellent combat commander and he was the one who put the the backbone into that central pocket where Paulus was housed. And Paulus actually came into his headquarters and took it over as the uh, Sixth Army's headquarters. But in charge of the actual perimeter and giving the day-to-day orders was uh, Roska. And this is a department store? Yeah, the Univermag uh, department store. So it really is like something from a – I mean, funnily enough, Pavlov's house that we talked about earlier, I know has been in a video game. It's been in a, a level of Call of Duty, I think. That's right. And, and the sort of the idea of fighting in the shattered remains of a department store surrounded by this bombed out city centre. I mean, that's very Call of Duty, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's, 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 re- that's literally what's happening. That they're reduced to this department store. Well, it's a scene from hell. Uh, and I agree with Tom. It's a hell of their own making, but it's, it's, it's a scene of hell because you've got thousands of dead and dying, lying in the basements of this department store. And don't forget, right from the beginning of the battle, 
that had seen some of the most brutal fighting in and around the department store, around the square where it was based and nearby the train station. That's where the first really titanic struggles were between troops fighting hand-to-hand combat in, in the buildings and cellars. So fast forward four months later, it's, it's lunar landscape, devastation. And that's their final readout. And how does the surrender actually happen? How is it negotiated? Well, the official story is uh, a Red Army lieutenant uh, was the first one to make contact and establish that they were they were offering terms and they were actually willing to to, to talk about terms this time and they weren't going to be uh, rejected out of hand. And it then went up the chain of command and uh, it got to general level where uh, the, the chief of staff of the 64th Army, which had been defending the, the south of the city, he was sent in, a guy called Lashkin. He was in there and he was the one who then sat down with Paulus and uh, him and his officers were visibly shocked by the state of Paulus. Uh, emaciated, gaunt, uh, slightly unshaven, uniform slightly a bit of a mess, not really the wherewithal to really understand what was being said. But again, when you read... The unpublished memoir of Roska, it was actually Roska who was in charge of the uh, the first communications. He'd gone out and knocked on a tank and said, uh, we want to now discuss surrender terms, send your party over. And that was the first uh, connection made to the enemy that was only a few hundred yards away from them. And obviously, they're surrounded by artillery tanks and, and heavily armoured infantry. They have no chance. They're barely holding on. But before even Paulus had turned up, it was Roska who'd, who'd announced to the Russian leadership, we have the field marshal in the building. They were, they were they, Up until then, they, they had no idea where Paulus was. And therefore, it was Roska who, who kind of choreographed what was going on over the next few hours and how the Russians would deal with their surrender, as in no one's going to be shot. Officers to a level can keep some sidearms. Uh, they're going to be supplied with food. Their sick will be treated fairly. Whether that happened or not, I'm sure it did. In lots of instances, I'm sure it didn't. Well, all the all the SS get shot, don't they? And, and any Russians who were in German uniform to get shot. Well, I was going to say the hardcore, there, there was a hardcore that still fought on for a few weeks after the surrender in the northern sector. And it took over, uh, it took, I think it was something like uh, 10,000 security troops had to go into the city, the ruins of the city, once Paulus's uh, surrender had been official, to flush out this uh, final nest of survivors who were just not going to give in. And, and maybe some of them were SS. I'm not sure the official records don't say that. But they were they were going to go down fighting. And, and I think out, out of the thousands that, I think it was eight to 9,000 were there that had to be flushed out and only 2,000 were captured. But in your book, you say that the prisoners, the SS prisoners and the, the Russians who had been in German uniform, they just get shot straight off. They would, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there was a lot of that going on uh, wholesale, if not... Uh, the back of a building or just taking away. There's one point that I capture about, which I hadn't read before, where as Paulus is being put into a staff car to take him to 64th Army headquarters to, to be the, the famous filming of him, uh, one Russian recognises him and, and marches up with, to him with a machine gun and just wanted to take him out then and there, and he had to be restrained. And, and, and Paulus is visibly shocked by this. So, so Paulus, he, he gets taken to Moscow, is that right? And he basically flips. He... He becomes a communist. Well, they, they, they were taken, uh, the majority of the uh, 90 or thousand that surrendered were marched into captivity, but, 
you know, march of death for, for many of them with disease and the cold and the lack of, because again, they, were, they weren't expected to capture so many prisoners. They didn't have the supplies to feed them. They could, they could barely f- feed their own troops. So there was a huge casualty rate and drop off of prisoners with it within weeks and months. But the, the, yeah, the elite of the German command uh, were taken to special camps uh, and it was there over the coming uh, months and the duration of the war that, yeah, quite a few of them did flip to the other side and they realized that fighting for national socialism wasn't uh, what it should be and, and calling upon uh, their comrades to uh, do the right thing. And, and Paulus was taken to the Nuremberg trials. He's one of the witnesses. And he ends up living in, in East Germany, doesn't he? He does, yeah. And uh, Roscoe, you talked about, who's a, one of the central characters really in your book, so he actually stays in it. He's in prison for the, for more than 10 years till 1955. So one of the last people to be released, I think. Is that right? Yes, yeah, so he was tried. Look at his prison records. He was tried as a war criminal, but many of them were, many of the senior officers were. And he, yeah, he did about 12 years, uh, the early part of which, first two or three years was hard labor. He moved around the, uh, the the prison of war archipelago. So he was in Siberia. He was in the Urals. He was down by the Black Sea. Uh, and he was in Stalingrad because they used quite a lot of POW, German POWs to rebuild Stalingrad over the next few years. So he came home uh, in the last year of the last transports coming back from the east to, the, to west Germany. And he came home to Dusseldorf in the summer of 1955. I mean, he, he had uh, he, he met uh, his youngest son he'd never seen before. He's, and that's one of the things I capture. Paulus tells him in the in the ruins of the Univermag while they're getting bombed. News has just come through on the radio that your wife's had a son. And he, he has to go off into an antechamber to, to, to cry because he's obviously it's, it's emotional news. But uh, yeah, so he, he meets this son for the first time. But whatever was going on in his head, whether it's PTSD or guilt, or he just couldn't, after everything he'd been through, he couldn't settle down. He, he sadly committed suicide Christmas Day, 1956. I mean, it's incredible when you think 1956, you know, the year that um, Bill Haley and the Comets are touring Britain, you know, the rock and roll, all that sort of thing, that um, the war is still sufficiently fresh in people's minds and that the scars of it are still so raw that people are coming home and and you know, taking their own lives because of the, the traumas they've suffered. But but talking of the freshness of of the memories of Stalingrad, obviously for, for the Soviet Union, and then when the Soviet Union falls, Russia as well, Stalingrad is the great victory, isn't it? It's the great crowning victory. Yeah, especially today. I mean, uh, that's the one thing... I, I, it was, it, you couldn't ignore it. When I, when I was on my trip, I met several historians there, had dinner with them. We had a really good chat and discussed lots of aspects of the story itself that I'm talking about and of Stalingrad as a whole. Uh, and to them, yes. I mean, even, even if you park Putin to one side and whatever agenda he's setting right now, and he has set over the last couple of decades, to them, Stalingrad is, uh, the cornerstone of what happened in the great patriotic war and along with other cities, I mean, there's, there's, there's over 10 of them, but Stalingrad was one of the first cities to be called a hero city or designated a hero city by uh, Stalin uh, to be celebrated as such. Uh, and ironically, Kiev's one of them too. Uh, and Odessa is as well. Uh, 
And so to, to Russians, it really, I mean, you, I can't overemphasize how much it means to them. When I was there, I was, I was standing outside Pavlov's house on a freezing cold day. It was about minus 10, minus 12, probably minus 20 in the chill, taking photos of the house. And I got there really early in the morning thinking no one will be here. It was about nine o'clock in the morning. And there, was, there was about two, 300 of them standing behind me that were doing the tour, going along the Volga, taking the photos of Pavlov's house. And as you say, Dominic, it's, it, I know it's in a, a call of duty, but th- there's other things as, you know, children are educated about it constantly. It's constantly in the, in, at the front of Russian military history, Russian history of the 20th century. And yet, is there, is there an irony here? Um, well, there are loads of ironies, but is one irony, Ian, that, I mean, you actually agree with James Holland in our Barbarossa podcast that the German drive, you know, eastwards and south was doomed anyway yeah i mean it's i mean i i just especially after the first year i can't understand why they thought they could conquer so much land that's the that's the thing but having launched it what else could they do no i agree i mean yeah i mean it's hobson's choice it wasn't like they could say oh sorry we've made a mistake let's patch things up but but equally compounded by the fact that he declares war on america yeah, well, Hitler's, Hitler's hopeless, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, but he's instigated his own downfall before they even launched Case Blue. And he's seen that from a strategic point of view, whereas the troops on the ground, you read the letters, you read the diaries, they did feel like this was it. This was their crusade. The communique Roska gives to his company commanders when the, he, because he led his regiment to capture the, the river right at the start of the battle. He's the first Germans on the river in the city. He gave a, commu- a communique to his troops declaring that we do this, the war's almost won. We get to the river, it's done. And you just think, what were they thinking? Well, Ian, thanks so much. Um, Tour de Force and your new book, The Lighthouse of Stalingrad, The Hidden Truth at the Centre of World War II's Greatest Battle, is out now? Comes out 28th of July. Brilliant. So that's The Lighthouse of Stalingrad. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. It is um, immensely readable, but it is a very harrowing story. But um Tom, I don't know if you agree, but harrowing stories are often the best, aren't they? Yeah, it's definitely harrowing. And, and um, I, do you know, I've, I've never actually, so I haven't read Anthony Beaver's book. It's a terrible thing to admit. I, I really know, I haven't seen the Jude Law film. I haven't played Call of Duty in the house. So I really, there's the, the depths of my ignorance about the Battle of Stalingrad are enormous. But um, Ian, yeah, Ian's shocking. I know. I can't believe you have the effrontery effrontery to appear on a history podcast after those admissions well but but now that now i've read ian's book and i know all about it <laughs> i meant to say one thing i forgot to say which i think is really key actually and, and whether they still go ahead with it i'd be super surprised because of what's going on right now the, the historians that i had dinner with in volgograd were launching a campaign to change the name of pavlov's house oh i thought you were going to say volgograd back to stalingrad well no but they are allowed to call it stalingrad six times a year uh, to do with various uh, uh, dates in the diary to do with the war, but they wanted to change the name of Pavlov's house to Afanasyev's house because they they feel that's the right thing to do. So whether they disappear from view now, who knows? Maybe call it Afanasyev and Pavlov's house. Or is that too wordy? That's that's the Liberal Democrat solution there, Tom. That's very very Liberal Democrat. Anyway, <laughs> thanks ever so much. Um, I think we have put the Battle of Stalingrad to bed. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, and thank you to Ian for coming on. And we will see you soon for more history-based, well, fun isn't the word, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me. Goodbye. 
Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thank you.